0: had to step out of the room for a few minutes. Well, when I came back, David was pretty fired up and I'm like, what's going on? Well, the company had stormed into the room. The lead negotiator took their proposal and slammed it on the table in front of David and said, you've been presented with our proposal.
1: During the lockout in 2013, um, they spent over almost $50 million in 10 months to try to save $8 million with scabs. And we had scabs working in a the plant then that actually got reported and and tried and convicted and in jail right now for urinating on on, a cereal belt. So, you know, no one wants to
2: eat rice kispy. People are not seeing what we're seeing. People are coming in air hungry and still dying. And there's still, like, there's no connection with the community. They're like, oh, this is a big hoax, or, oh, it's it's not going to affect me, until it does.
3: Redistricting will determine the political landscape for our state for the next decade. And that really determines what kind of policies we can get passed that impact working families. And it's the people that we elect that pass those policies. And if we can't elect people who care about what workers need and what families need, then we all suffer.
4: The most frustrating part for me is for the parents not reading the books themselves. No one has read the book. No one has taken the time to see what is the theme of the book. What's the message they're trying to portray. It's just if it has anything to do with race. It's anything to do with race. It's completely pushed aside as, my child will not read
5: this. We passed the motion anonymously. It was around almost 50 people there calling for a couple of conditions before returning on site for mandatory vaccination for staff. Close to 100% vaccination for eligible students and air filters in every classroom and none of these have been met as we return
6: on site, Some of us are getting back into traveling for work. We're flying, staying at hotels, renting cars. We're buying meals for ourselves and for others. Are we utilizing travel reward programs, airline miles and the like? Why not? Say, for example, we find a hotel chain that we really like. Their customer service is excellent. Their rooms are always clean. We should be signing up for their loyalty reward programs. These benefits can really add up.
7: There's really five primary tasks for an actor. And this may sound a little cold-hearted and harsh, but I think it's helpful to sort of hear this point of view.
8: I'm Mary Harris Jones, but I'm called a lot of other names. Bolshevik, socialist, most dangerous woman in
9: america welcome to the labor radio podcast weekly our roundup of highlights from some of the nearly 150 shows that make up the labor radio podcast network you can check them all out at laborradionetwork.org this week we featured two reports on the strike by kellogg's workers members of the bctgm as the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union. The first comes to us from the BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast put out by the BCTGM. And the second is from the checkout, which takes us right to the Kellogg's picket lines. Then, on the Union Talk Podcast, a conversation with nurses on vaccine hesitancy within their patient community and their own nursing community. This week, on the Working to Live in Southwest Washington podcast, Shannon and Harold talk with April Sims about redistricting and how it will affect working people. Next up, we have two reports from the classroom on educating from the heart, a new rule by the State Board of Education restricts teachers' ability to teach critical thinking, and from the Solidarity Breakfast podcast, Safety in Schools in Victoria, Australia. And on the Million Dollar Organizer podcast, travel perks and the difference between a union organizer and a union representative. How can actors avoid ending up on the cutting room floor? We'll find out on the SAG-AFTRA podcast. And we wrap up with the voice of the legendary Mother Jones and the recent Blair Mountain Battle Centennial from Empathy Media Lab. I'm Chris Scarlett for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And remember, you can find all of today's shows, along with nearly 150 more just like them, at laborradionetwork.org. And if you enjoy the Labor Radio Podcast Network Weekly, please be sure to like us and share. Solidarity works. Here's the show.
10: Welcome to the BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. I'm Michelle Ellis, Director of Digital Media. I will bring the work of our union to you through monthly interviews with the BCTGM's hard-working leaders, organizers, and everyday members. This is the BCTGM Voices Project. On October 5th, nearly 1,400 BCTGM members at cereal plants in Battle Creek, Michigan, Omaha, Nebraska, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Memphis, Tennessee went on strike against the Kellogg Company. The lead union negotiator for their contract, East Central Region Vice President Roger Miller, talked with me this past weekend about the complicated sticking points which led an overwhelming 90% of the workers to vote in favor of a strike. Roger Miller. Let's go ahead and start with you giving us an overview of some of the concessions that this company is asking for and, and how the negotiations ultimately broke down.
0: Okay, sure, Michelle. So some of the takeaways that the company has proposed are to eliminate premium health care pension for all current and future employees, a holiday pay, vacation time, as well as the union label on their product. Now, how negotiations ultimately broke down. I guess we'd have to start from the beginning a little bit. When we started negotiations with the company the first day, they usually have a presentation on the business. They explained to us that Kellogg has lost market share. They're not any longer the number one cereal producer in North America that General Mills had taken that spot. And that the only way that they can see to get back to number one is by taking away from their employees. Well, no takeaway can increase volume or give them market share. So none of that really made sense. And then they proceeded to tell us how they only made $500 million in profit out of cereal. Only $500 million in profit out of cereal. And that we just couldn't be competitive that way. That they had to take away so that they could be more competitive. Well, again, that doesn't make you competitive. It just increases their profit margin off the backs of their workers. So as we progressed through the week, the company started to threaten us. If we would not agree to their takeaways then they were going to start closing plants, moving product to Mexico, whatever they had to do to get a cheaper, less benefited workforce, they were going to have to do. So as the week progressed, it ended up being just, uh, we would meet for a few minutes, tell each other, no, we would break. So this was the whole second week. No, 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 from each group, company and union. And then we would break. Well, Wednesday of the second week, the lead negotiator and half of his committee came in to start the morning off. And he informed us that it was a waste of time for them to even meet with us, that uh, the rest of the committee, which was the plant managers and the vice president that was sitting at the table for the company, they would not be joining us anymore. They had better things to do than the this contract. And then we didn't meet after lunch with the company. Now the very end came on Friday before lunch. Our committee was out of the room on a break. Secretary Treasurer David Woods and I had to step out of the room for a few minutes. When I came back, David was pretty fired up and I'm like, what's going on? Well, the company had stormed into the room. The lead negotiator took their proposal and slammed it on the table in front of David and said, you've been presented with our proposal. And as he walked out and opened the door, the rest of his committee was there and they were laughing like a bunch of junior high school kids. I've never seen or heard of anything like that in my life. Well, when, very
4: unprofessional.
0: Yeah, well, it's to say the least, unprofessional. Yeah. But anyway, so we uh, called the committee back in. We explained to them what happened. So they said, we really don't care to meet with them any longer. So I met with the company. I gave them our 48-hour strike notice, which is required by the contract, and explained to them that what they had done that day had basically ended negotiations and that we were going home.
10: All right. Thank you, Roger. Well, that, that's it then. We are BCTGM on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more on the activities of the BCTGM, go to bctgm.org.
2: Welcome to The Checkout, Kevin Bradshaw, our local 252G, Memphis, Tennessee, BCTGM, on the picket line, striking Kellogg's. Thanks for making time for us.
1: All right, no problem. You're welcome. How you doing?
2: Doing all right today. So, Kevin, tell us what your role is at Kellogg's. let uh, start role, there.
1: My role at Kellogg's as an employee, I work on um, back in the warehouse where we actually finish all the making the products and shipping it all over the world. Uh, it's called the Unitizer, case Steeler operator. So, I've been doing that for about 20 years. So, that's my role at Kellogg's. My role with the union, I'm the vice president of our local here, and I'm 252G. And I was also the president of our local back in 2013 when we were locked out. So, that's my role as a union here.
2: So, you guys are on the picket line at a Kellogg's plant that you work at in Memphis, Tennessee. Tell us what are the
1: issues here? Uh, the issues here is all about the future of um, the working person in America here at Kellogg's. It's about reducing the, the hourly rate wage. It's about cutting benefits from pensions, retirement, and healthcare. Um, and that's that's essential for any, any working person in America, any working person in the world.
2: How has the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated some of these working conditions
0: at your plant?
1: Oh well, well, Kellogg's has capitalized off of it like many other companies. And during that time, we risk our lives working seven days a week, 12, 16 hours a day just to meet the demands of the cereal business. And uh, you know the companies made year-end profits quarter after quarter of us working like that while they sit at home and work from home, and we work here. I mean, we I think they reported in one quarter last year or last quarter they made three hundred eighty million dollars in less than nine months. I mean, and you know we didn't receive any any type of thank you or what whatsoever. We got two five hundred dollar bonus checks for being essential and working seven days, 12, 16 hours a day and why they got 158% raise across the board and top executives. So, and we've had people that actually died from COVID-19. We've had more than um, over 150 people at one time who've been exposed to COVID-19, who actually caught COVID-19, were home sick to COVID-19. And now you're talking about working, doing the same thing every day, day in, day out, but taking away the health care benefits and insurance of the future employee, and still with a pandemic going on, not just a pandemic, but it just doesn't make sense in any type of world we live in. So what's at stake for you and your fellow workers with this strike? What, what are you guys standing for? We're fighting for um, working class. We're fighting for families. We're fighting for loved ones. We're fighting for America to keep, to keep America great with unions. America needs unions. So that's what we're trying to do. We're fighting for all the unions. Our fight is your fight. You know, your fight is our fight. So we're fighting for everyone in the world right now uh folks skip the frosted flakes oh yeah i mean they gotta go leave the cereal in the store i mean it's over (laughs) with you know i mean why would you want to and then they're threatening to move products to mexico if we don't give them what they want they say well we're gonna have to move to mexico no one wants to eat food from another country we make the lowest cost of cereal in the united states right here in memphis tennessee along with my three other sister plants in omaha nebraska Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Battle Creek, Michigan. We are low-cost producers. That's why Kellogg's are in business with us. So we're fighting for our honor. We're fighting for our families. And we're here to stay one day longer, one day stronger. And they're threatening to bring scabs in to try to replace us. We know during the lockout from 2013, um, they spent over almost $50 million in 10 months to try to save $8 million with scabs. And we had scabs working in the plant then that actually got reported and, and tried and convicted and in jail right now for urinating on on um, cereal belt, so, you know, no one wants to eat Rice Krispies, you know what I mean? We want to eat Rice Krispies, not Rice Krispies, so, I mean, let them try whatever they're going to try, but we're not going to give in to their corporate greed. We're here to fight them. Right on, Kevin. Best of luck out there. We're with you. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you, sir.
11: part of a union because you have to have
12: a voice.
13: I'm AFT President Randy Weingarten, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Union Talk. The Delta variant combined with vaccine hesitancy has led to a surge, a pandemic of the unvaccinated that once again has overwhelmed hospitals and ICUs. We're starting to see some relief again, but ultimately this has taken its toll. I'm so grateful to be joined by Joel Hernandez, a nurse at St. Charles Hospital in Oregon and a board member of the Oregon Nurses Association, Tisa Williams, a nurse at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center and a member of the Ohio Nurses Association, And Jessica Harris, a nurse at Bacchus Hospital in Connecticut, and a vice president of the Bacchus Federation of Nurses. You've been on the front lines. What's it been like for you personally and for the other nurses and health professionals in your hospitals? I
2: was in the ICU the other day, and we were talking about, yeah, we just had nine COVID deaths in the last 12 hours in our ICU. And we're just talking about like, it was like no big thing that we had to get a a truck to bring in and put these these bodies in because our morgue is at capacity. And then, so I leave and I I go to one of our grocery stores. Nobody is masked. No, I know like a lot of these people are not vaccinated because of those rural areas, but there's this disconnect. The people are not seeing what we're seeing. People are coming in air hungry and still dying. And there's still, like, there's no connection with the community. They're like, oh, this is a big hoax. Or, oh, it's not going to affect me. Until it does. And having fatigue in the matter of, your compassion is gone. Sometimes. You just, you you're, feel like you're banging your head against the wall, trying to tell these people to please get vaccinated. And the truth is, about 90, close to 95% of our people in the ICU are, vaccine, are unvaccinated. They just decided not to because of misinformation or how it's been politicized.
13: Jessica, there's been a lot of work that you've done to create a Bacchus community of nurses and health professionals. Talk a little bit about whether or not coming together as a community in the, during the strike and the aftermath of the strike has been helpful or there's been some residual negative effects or residual positive effects. I think that the work
14: that we did before and during and after the strike really helped to bond the nurses at Bacchus together. There's been a little bit of a rift, I think, between the nurses with the vaccine mandates. Initially, when the vaccines weren't mandated, they were just offered. Everyone who wanted one was just lining up to get them. I got mine as soon as I could. Most of my close, you know, co-worker friends also did. And then when it came down to something that was going to be mandated, we've seen a little rift in our cohesive group because there was just people that just didn't want to be told that they had to get it. So that's been something that's been hard for us to overcome because we want to, of course, support people's rights to make choices about their healthcare. We advocate for that all the time, but also like Joel and Tisa have said, is that you have to have a bigger sense of of community and doing what's right for the greater good. And it's been a little bit of a challenge, I would say. I think that we're at like high 90s percentage-wise as far as nurses being vaccinated. But it took the mandate and it took the threat of them having to either resign or be terminated for that sort of last little bit of nurses to decide, "Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and get this." I think as a union, our position is that the vaccine is safe and effective and the best thing that we can do to get through this pandemic. So that's, that's our position while at the same time trying to be just aware that people have opinions about this and we still want them to be a member of our backus community of our nurses union community while hopefully they come to the conclusion that's best for themselves.
13: I see uh, Chisa shaking her head. There just seems to
11: be, um, little division going on right now. I I have a newfound respect for our union. Definitely. I saw what they deal with as far as bargaining, as far as representing us, as far as like the back and forth of what they deal with and trying to negotiate and trying to get things that we need and making sure that our voices are heard. But I am seeing a divide and it did start with the vaccine mandate. People don't like to be told what to do. and, And I do believe in the, um, power of choice. And and it is hard. And also as far as like things that they have tried to come up with uh, trying to compensate for the nursing shortage for the staffing, they've tried to come up with bonuses for Nurses, It's actually caused more division because I know administrations a lot of times, even now, they've decided, okay, these nurses, they deserve pay, but we've left out these nurses. They don't deserve the COVID pay. So now you've got, you're working alongside nurses that are making three times as much as you, and they've got some chill assignment is what we call it on the floor. (laughs) They've got to put your feet up at night assignment. And I'm running around with five COVID patients. I shook my head because when she said that, there's so much division. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but a lot of it is coming from administration. And it's so important to have this union right now to, because if we didn't have a union, I don't even know how
13: our voices would even be heard. So I can't thank Joel and Tisa and Jessica enough for this powerful conversation. I hope you're enjoying the podcast as much as I'm enjoying doing it. Until next time, I'm Randy Weingarten. Thanks again for listening. Hello, working
10: people of Southwest Washington.
15: You're listening to episode 25 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington.
10: I'm Shannon Myers.
15: And I'm Harold Phillips. A lot of people here in southwest Washington, all over Washington, really, might know who their U.S. senators are.
10: That would be our amazing Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell.
15: And they might know who their U.S. representative is, but a lot of them may not know who represents them in the state capitol in Olympia. And even if they do, who represents them and who else is going to vote for their legislators here in Washington in 2022? might be changing very soon. That's because we're going through a process right now called redistricting. It's a big nebulous process that a lot of people may not be paying attention to, but it could have big impacts on how business gets done in Olympia for the next decade. To help us make sense of redistricting and explain why it's so important, we're very happy to welcome April Sims back to the show.
10: She's our Secretary-Treasurer of the Washington State Labor Council, and she's also a member of the Washington State Redistricting Commission. Congratulations, April. Thank you
3: so much, and thank you for having me on the show.
15: So this is a big deal. Not only are you involved in redrawing the legislative districts in the state, you're also bringing a labor-oriented voice into the commission.
3: That's exactly right. And it's a real privilege. I am the first person representing labor to serve on the Redistricting Commission in the history of the Redistricting Commission. And I also have the privilege and the distinction of being the first woman of color to serve on the Redistricting Commission. And I think the first person of color to serve on the Redistricting Commission with my counterpart, Brady Pinera-Wackenshaw, Walkenshaw, is the Senate Democratic appointee.
15: What exactly do you do? Mm -hmm. as the Redistricting Commission. How does that work?
3: Serving on the Redistricting Commission has been a lot of fun, but our real job is to uh, rebalance the population of legislative and congressional districts in our state. So every 10 years, the federal government does a census. That census tells us not just what the population in our state is, but where the population is residing. And then we redraw our legislative and congressional boundaries to make sure that each district, either legislative or congressional, has approximately the same population. So if you think about the premise around one voice, one vote, that every vote has the same equal weight. If we did not redistrict or redraw our boundaries every 10 years, then we could have one district in Washington state that has three elected officials representing that district and maybe has a population of 50,000 people. And by contrast, we could have another district in Washington state that has the same number of people representing that district. And that district could have over 500,000 people in it. So every 10 years, in order to make sure that Everyone's vote has equal weight. The lines are redrawn so that each district has the same population, so that every representative represents approximately the same number of people.
10: A lot of listeners, they're probably thinking, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know why this is important to me. How do we get people more involved and why
3: should they care? So you're asking me to make redistricting sexy for your listeners.
10: Oh, make it sexy.
3: Like, why should we care? Redistricting will determine the political landscape for our state for the next decade. And that really determines what kind of policies we can get past that impact working families. Working families, they want employment that pays a livable wage and provides a glide path to the middle class. Working families want policies that allow them to take time off to take care of their families. They want policies that protect the social safety net. We saw how important that social safety net was during this pandemic. And it's the people that we elect that pass those policies. And if we can't elect people who care about what workers need and what families need, then we all suffer. I'm not sure that's sexy, but it feels really important to me.
15: I think we're hearing... Just what a difference having labor's voice on the commission is making, because you are bringing these points to the commission as you have your meetings.
3: Absolutely. Especially, you know, as we have our meetings, thinking about how we can create a process that allows folks to participate at whatever level they are comfortable with, that doesn't require folks to be mathematicians or GIS specialists where folks can really provide direct input to the commission in whatever format they're most comfortable with. There's any number of ways that you can provide public input and comment and engage in the process and making sure that we have a process that is transparent, a process where the average listener feels like they can provide input and can impact the outcome of redistricting was really important. Well,
15: thank you so much for making the time to join us. April Sims, Washington Redistricting Commissioner and Secretary-Treasurer of the Washington State Labor Council.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
15: And thank you, working people, for joining us on another episode of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. We'll see you soon.
10: Bye. You're listening to Educating from the Heart. Thank you for joining our lively conversations with teachers, support professionals, parents, and students as they share issues that matter most in our public schools. Here are your hosts, Tina Dunbar and Luke Flint.
16: Over this past summer, we saw the State Board of Education pass a new rule relating to the teaching of American history that many educators fear will have a chilling effect on instruction. While it's quite common for the State Board to pass rules on what must be taught, they're now engaging in what some call censorship or cancel culture. As the rule explicitly states, certain historical facts must not be fully explored. That's left many educators questioning how deleting facts could lead to effective lessons in history and civics. In fact, during last month's episode, we spoke with a history teacher who shared her concerns on how this new rule actually hurts students. Because without understanding the full history of our country, they may not be able to recognize the positive contributions they could make to the future.
17: How does teaching history or teaching slavery or racism or things like that in the appropriate context, we know how that would impact history teachers. Why does that have an impact on you as an English teacher?
4: So it's funny that you asked that question. So today we read a poem from 1623. And I think the poem would have been very challenging for students had we not done some contextual background before jumping into the poem. So the poem was No Man is an Island by John Donne. And I think that going and talking about the contextual background, understanding this author was from Europe and he had undergone, or he just experienced a life, almost fatal illness. He almost died from this illness. That near-death experience caused him to write all these meditations on life. And one of the meditations that came out was this excerpt, No Man is an Island. So without that contextual background, I don't know that students would have been able to correctly identify the theme, understand the metaphor in the poem, and how he's trying to develop that theme. So whenever we study things in isolation, it, it makes it really challenging for students to make connections because the reality is just like the poem, no man is an island. The theme is that we're, no, no one's alone. No concept really is in isolation by itself because everything affects everything else. We're all inextricably linked.
17: Yeah. And I think that poem in particular, I, I think Really resonates with where we are with COVID-19, where where John Dunn, uh says, "Ask not for whom the bell tolls." Right? We are all mm-hmm. an island connected to the main. It tolls for thee. Yeah. Um, we are all connected, and we all need to do what we can for each other. So does it. Does it worry you now when you teach things like that, or maybe even anticipating that you'll get a couple of upset phone calls or or emails because you dare to put things in context?
4: At at the beginning of my teaching career, I didn't think about those things. My, My thoughts were classroom management and are we hitting the standards? But now I do have this little fear every time I bring up a piece of literature, is this going to be met with? any sort of adversity, I think it's super important to include context when you read, especially when we're reading pieces of literature from so many different time periods. And I just want to make sure that my students understand the connections between what's happening in the poem and what the author was going through. I think in general, there is a layer of fear from teachers throughout every district about the pushback or the anger from parents about what they teach even things that have been approved texts and stories that have been approved by the state that are in our textbooks are being challenged are being politicized they're being polar they're polarizing our parents and it was really disheartening this summer to see parents on facebook getting in these just this vitriol over the books that students were reading. And the most frustrating part for me is the parents not reading the books themselves. No one has read the book. No one has taken the time to see what is the theme of the book? What's the message they're trying to portray? It's just, if it has anything to do with race, if it's anything to do with race, it's completely pushed aside as my child will not read this. When in reality, sometimes these conversations are, more about the human experience and they're about tragedy in general and how we cope with tragedy and the importance of humanity and relying on one another and friendships. So it's a struggle, I think, for people in every district right now, because there is that fear of, is this going to be polarizing? Is this going to be met with anger? Are our parents going to be upset about this? And it's not just things that we pull randomly. It's Things that are in our textbook that we're given as resources are
17: also being. Relevant. And can you think of a, a specific e- example of something like that, if something from your is now worrisome?
4: Yeah, I, I'm concerned about. So, one of the texts that was on the summer reading list that was the Florida teen re- Teens Reads book was uh, The Hate You Give. Mm. So, mm. there was a lot of concern about that text being on there. There, e- even To Kill a Mockingbird is. Mm a classic. It's so many people have read and loved for years. That's a book that some people do not want their kids to read anymore. I'm going to be reading Of Mice and Men with my students next week. And that's a book that I'm nervous as someone going to have something to say about this. So it's hard as an English teacher because you can't, everything you read from American history is going to have some commentary on race because it's inextricably linked with our history. And it's hard for me because I'm like, should I avoid those conversations and just focus on the thematic (laughs) conversations? Or is this an
16: opportunity for me to talk about history with my students? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again real soon. Until then, keep educating from the heart.
12: You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got one of these rabble-rousing union members on the line right now, Jamil, how are you from the Australian Education Union?
5: Good morning, Annie. Thanks for having
12: me. Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. Thanks for uh, getting up to talk to me this morning. Now, obviously, going back to school during COVID or uh, the whole experience of trying to be a school teacher or an educator during COVID has been uh, a very challenging affair. Can you give my listeners some understanding of your world at the moment? It's
5: a fast changing world. So the last couple of months we've been teaching remotely and just this term the Victorian government's got a reopening plan and so from this week we'll slowly be returning on site so u 12 have returned on site as of um, Tuesday this week and then by around 5th of November all year levels will be back primary and secondary full-time on site.
12: Which is all a bit pretty scary, actually, considering the numbers are going up, up.
5: Yeah, and even higher than what was expected at the moment. By Dece- uh, December, it was expected that there'd be cases about 4,000 a day. And you can imagine how integrated schools are to the community. Local schools, I'm aware of, for having cases with a, either within the school or students getting it beforehand, so... If there's cases in the community, they're getting into the schools, and mitigation um, and h and s measures are quite important in this context.
12: Yeah. So you're a delegate on your side, and a core group of you are pushing the Australian Education Union to be quite active in this sphere, right?
5: Yeah. We've been disappointed with the lack of advocacy around trying to keep schools safer during the pandemic by our union. So there's a number of us in the COVID Safer Schools Network have been meeting. The first uh, time we realised that there was broader concern was it was maybe... It was over a month ago now at an inner-city regional meeting where delegates from the inner-city of Melbourne meet. We passed the motion anonymously. It was around almost 50 people there calling for a couple of conditions before returning on-site for mandatory vaccination for staff, close to 100% vaccination for eligible students, and air filters in every classroom. And none of these have been met as we return on site. A number of staff aren't fully vaccinated and won't be for a while now. And majority of seven to 11 are not vaccinated. Under 12s won't be at all, at least a quarter, a few 12s haven't had their first vaccination either as they return on site. And although it's great that Dan Andrews has ordered 51,000 air filters, we don't know if any schools that have received them yet, and majority of classrooms still won't have them, even with this purchase.
12: So, so what you're saying that needs to be done. Done, yeah. so what you're saying is that there's a mis-timing or a misstep between the plan to make school safe and the time this it almost I almost choke when I say this uh, road map because we've all been seduced by pub, publicity advertising language a roadmap to freedom is a little bit out of sync that's what you're saying isn't it
5: Definitely we think that schools as a workplace and a place to study are unnecessarily unsafe right now
12: and so, oh
5: definitely premature. The union hasn't been advocating for a number of these measures as well. If, things need to happen beyond a local level as well
12: to oh, encourage the union to advocate for us. Yeah, yeah, so what you're saying is that the members of the union need to give the the union a little bit of a push. Thanks Jamil, thanks for talking to us.
5: Norris, no thanks for your time.
12: No worries.
7: It's the Million Dollar Organizer Show. Tips for professional union organizers. Win more campaigns, balance work and family, and leave the competition in the dust.
6: Now here's your host, Bob O'Dey. Hello, union organizers and future union organizers. This is podcast episode number 44. Has anyone ever asked you what the difference is between a union representative and an organizer? Not too long ago, it was common to see union representative slash organizer as someone's title. Generally speaking, a union rep services existing union members and defends workers working under a collective bargaining agreement. An organizer is tasked with recruiting new members into the union. But here's how an organizer with 25 years experience recently described the two positions. Reps wait for problems to come through the door. Organizers get to go out and make problems. I love that distinction. Now, some of us are getting back into traveling for work. We're flying, staying at hotels, renting cars. We're buying meals for ourselves and for others. Are we utilizing travel reward programs, airline miles, and the like? Why not? Say, for example, we find a hotel chain that we really like. Their customer service is excellent. Their rooms are always clean. We should be signing up for their loyalty reward programs. These benefits can really add up, especially if we tend to use the same vendor over and over. And when I travel, I try to use the same hotel chain, if available. It's just easier, and I know what to expect when I arrive. Some offer points for each stay and a free breakfast. I'm an early riser, so this is something that can really come in handy. Grab a cup of coffee, a bagel, some yogurt, a piece of fruit. Often, that's enough to hold me over until lunch. Pass the savings on to the union or, when traveling on vacation, use the reward points for free hotel stays. We can do the same for airlines and rental cars. If we're being reimbursed for expenses, there may be benefits to using certain credit cards. Each of these vendors, the airlines, the hotel chains, the rental car companies, offer their own credit card. And by paying with their card, they offer certain benefits and upgrades. It can be an early check-in, reward points, free car wash, Do a little research. Find out which companies offer the most generous programs. I hate to see organizers not take advantage of such perks.
7: Thanks for listening. We hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you'd like to hear the Million Dollar Organizer talk about. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Union Organizer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
18: everyone. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Duncan Crabtree-Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. On today's show, we're going to dig into some of the things actors can do to not end up on the cutting room floor. This is a familiar scenario for most performers. You book the job, give what you feel is an excellent performance, only to find it doesn't appear in the final cut. What went wrong, and what can you do to increase the chances you stay in the picture? To tackle this issue head-on, we're going to replay a PTEOE talk given by Emmy Award-winning television editor Jordan Goldman. Jordan has worked for 20 years in Hollywood on such shows as Homeland, The Shield, Fargo, and Cobra Kai. He also wrote the book, How to Avoid the Cutting Room Floor, an editor's advice for on-camera actors. Jordan is definitely an expert on this topic, and I think you'll find some really valuable do's and don'ts in his talk. I'm excited to share this with you. Without further delay, we bring you Jordan Goldman. There's really five primary tasks for an actor.
7: And this may sound a little cold hearted and harsh, but I think it's helpful to sort of hear this point of view. The five primary tasks of an actor really are to stand in the right places. You know, hitting your marks, to say the right words, to know your lines, to be directable, to convince the audience that you are the person you are supposed to be, and that you are experiencing what the story says you are experiencing. If you can do these five things, that's fantastic, and that's what you were hired for, and that's what we want. We want someone to convince us that you are this character in the show or the movie, and that these things are happening to you and you're responding as that person. And it's the very first time any of these things have happened and that what you're doing is believable. And then from a technical point of view, you gotta be standing where the camera's focused for you and you gotta say the words that the writer has written for you because they worked very hard to come up with those particular lines. So if you're doing all five of those things, that's fantastic. If you're doing more than that, like having a really interesting point of view about your character, or an interesting point of view in the scene, or bring all sorts of interesting stuff to the performance. That stuff is fantastic. That's gravy. But you need to be able to do those other five things. I got to reiterate that editors don't really enjoy cutting people out. And to it may surprise you to know that producers and directors also often do not enjoy cutting people out of shows. They don't want to do it. But sometimes there's things that happen that make it so we have to do it for the sake of the drama. I hope you guys find this helpful.
8: Most dangerous woman in America, walking wrath of God. And Mother Jones, Yeah, but I'm used to the slander from the politicians and the press. Well, I'm here to tell you what's the God's truth. It doesn't matter what race, creed, or political banner you stand under. We're all laborers, and we've got to stand together. If we don't, there's no hope for... Of us, you've got to start using your brains, folks. You've got to start using your brain. The times are changing. Times are changing. The minds of man are changing in this country, around the world. All of this unrest, the miners upset. Why are they upset? What's the real cause? Why would they go out on strike for months on end? Why would they do it? Why would they do it? There's a new change to the mind. The politicians don't know about it because they don't have brains like ours. We're like the fella up in the lookout tower and he can see the smoke from a long ways off and he knows, he knows there's a wildfire coming. It's going to sweep across the county, across the state, across the United States, and around the world, and nothing's going to stop it. The Russians can't stop it. The Chinese can't stop it. Deportations can't stop it. We've got to stand together. That's our only hope to organize and stand together. It's not the different races and religions that's causing all the trouble. No, it's those politicians and the press with their poison pens, writing poison, poisoning your minds. But you yourselves, your men of honor, respectable, Decent, hard-working, and you've let them come in and rob you blind, and you never said a damn word about it. You let them rob you, oh, they smile at you and say what a lovely job you're doing. But they're robbing you blind, they're coming in, taking your money, and hiring armed guards to keep you in subjection. And what do you do about it? This is a great nation, and you've turned it over to the dollar thieves. You've turned it to the dollar thieves, and now your children, your children have to fight your battles for you. Now's the time for the laborers to stand together in solidarity. The press is sown poison with their poison pens, but we're so in harmony with our solidarity. We've got to stand together. I want you to carry to your grave, honor, dignity, and respect to your fellow man, for your fellow laborers, those that have God-given differences, respect them. We can stand together and fight for fair wages, equality, and justice. Are you ready for fair wages? Yes! Are you ready for equality? Yes! Are you ready for justice? Yes! Then rise up, Clevers! Rise up and show the world what the workers can do!
19: On this day in labor history, the year was 1990. That was the day that President George H.W. Bush signed the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Worker safety at the Nevada nuclear test site had been sacrificed during the Cold War era as the United States rushed to keep pace with the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenal. The result was an increase in cancers, including leukemia, from workers being exposed to deadly radiation. For more than a decade, these workers tried to get Congress to to pass legislation for compensation for radiation sickness. Uranium miners from states including Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming also joined the effort filing a suit against the government. The courts ruled against the workers, ruling that national security needs trumped the safety of workers. Democratic Representative Wayne Owens from Utah sponsored a bill to give the workers compensation. In a statement carried by the New York Times, Representative Owens called the bill, quote, an apology to those people and their heirs on behalf of the government and the American people that were subjected and sacrificed for the Cold War nuclear weapons. President Bush explained the scope of the act at the signing ceremony, saying, quote, the bill provides compassionate payments to persons with specified diseases who fear that their health was harmed because of the fallout from atmospheric atomic testing at the Nevada test site. Regardless of whether causation can be scientifically established, the bill entitles each person meeting specific criteria to a payment of $50,000. Uranium miners meeting separate criteria will be entitled to compassionate payments in the amount of $100,000. The bill established a $100 million fund for the workers and residents who lived downwind of the Nevada test site.
9: That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith, produced by me, and our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.